You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, Ray here. Have I got a story for you. When the massive French passenger ship USS Normandie caught fire and sank in the Hudson River, only weeks before it was to be retrofitted for military service, that same month, 31 U.S. ships were torpedoed by German U-boats. That was February 1942. Military brass could not help but suspect sabotage. To protect New York's valuable port, the Navy enlisted Lucky Luciano and his dangerous mob to patrol and spy. A Navy Meets Mobster story, the new book Operation Underworld, How the Mafia and the U.S. Government Teamed Up to Win World War II, is the first ever account of the war effort's clandestine coalition between the Mafia and the U.S. Government, which helped the Allies win World War II. Journalist and crime historian Matthew Black reveals the Faustian bargain that brought home front enemies together in a dangerous mission the Navy denied for decades. Operation Underworld is available everywhere books are sold. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 404, Operation Pedestal, First Blood. It wasn't looking good for Malta, nor, for that matter, was it looking good for the British Royal Navy and Merchant Marine. And Malta needed both services to get the job done. But that, that was part of the problem. If anything, this was the heyday, with a few exceptions, of Axis military power in the Mediterranean and elsewhere. Hadn't convoy PQ-17, Murmansk-bound, just been abandoned by her escorts? And the convoy ships themselves were told, convoy is to scatter, as if that would help. In the end, PQ-17 lost 24 of its 36 merchantmen. 
So how is it to be any better for Malta, what being in Italy's backyard? Still, needs must. Churchill had sworn to hold Malta, even defending it, against his own war cabinet. No, London had had to give up the Channel Islands at the beginning of the war. He now, by God, would not give up Malta. And as it would be easy to argue that mid-1942 was one of the bleakest periods for the Allies, Ernest Bevan, the Minister of Labor, at various times a blessing and a curse of a man, got it in one when he said, We must have a victory. What the British public wants is a victory. And as Malta's governor had made it clear by that summer to the war cabinet, if food, fuel, and ammunition did not reach Malta by the time the leaves fell, well, it would all be over. Malta would have to surrender, if only to save its people from starvation. No, it wasn't looking good for Malta. And to make it worse, there actually was a ticking clock. As Deputy Governor of Malta, Sir Edward Jackson put it, after the mostly failed June convoys, we have received 15,000 tons of stores. We knew that our present ration could not be reduced, despite this small amount that got through, and it will not be reduced. So, taking what we have and what we just received, a calculation gives us a date, which I shall call the target date. Our task is to see how we can make our other vital necessities last to the target date. So that was it. Either Malta stretched out its meager means until the target date, or it surrendered. And we know, but the Maltese did not, that that date was September 7th. And yet, as World War II was a war that involved so many developed, industrialized nations— there were still only so many resources to go around. And if a massive escort was going to be put together, some other theater, or theaters, would have to do without. And they did. As escorting convoys were temporarily halted after the disaster of PQ-17, and the known Japanese vessels had left the Indian Ocean, not to mention the recent Battle of Midway, Churchill and his war cabinet decided to pull from these two areas to give Pedestal the protection it needed, relatively speaking. Due to the geography and the way that the Mediterranean War had fleshed out thus far, the closer any merchantman got to Malta, the more dangerous it was. So various escorts would be around this convoy at different times in different locations. But the most important factor was to have the convoy make its last part of the journey during a moonless period, which meant it had to happen between August 10th and August 16th, which of course determined all the other parts of the scheduling needed. Now that Pedestal had been given a green light, a naval officer was chosen to be in overall command, that being one Vice Admiral Sir Neville Seifert of South Africa. He was currently in command of Force H, the naval unit based at Gibraltar, thus he was determined to have the necessary experience and knowledge of the area. On July 13th, Seifert flew to London. Along with him was his operations staff officer, Commodore A.H. Thorold, and together they met the other top officers. Rear Admiral A.L. St. G. Leicester, who would coordinate the aerial defense of the various carriers involved, and Rear Admiral H.M. Burrow, commander of the 10th Cruiser Squadron. It would be Burrow who commanded the close escort force to Malta, Force X. 
These men met at Norfolk House in St. James Square with Admiral Pound's staff. The details of the convoy were to be worked out next. As this was a do-or-die situation for Malta, the home fleet would be involved, only leaving behind two modern battleships and a heavy cruiser squadron at Scapa Flow. Their job was to check the more modern battleship turpits should the enemy choose to strike while the bulk of the fleet was away. The plan for Pedestal started taking shape. First, there would be a decoy leaving Alexandria at the same time, hopefully splitting the Axis response. Next, Pedestal was to have a much heavier air presence than previous convoys, most especially when the ships would be between Sicily and the Tunisian coast. Land-based enemy planes from either or both of these could easily spell doom for London's hopes. That area was the bottleneck in terms of an air threat, but in other ways as well. And for the last part of the journey, the number of destroyers and cruisers had to be beefed up. No sense in making it 95% of the way, only to be sunk and lost within sight of Malta. And adding some old-school muscle to this force, the battleships Nelson and Rodney were ordered to Scapa from Freetown, Sierra Leone. Now, they weren't as fast as the more modern Italian battleships, but their max speed of 21 knots would at least allow them to defend against the Italians with their 30-knot capabilities. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As further air arm, Pedestal needed something that could not only keep enemy bombers away, but could, in their turn, inflict damage from above. Thus, the eight interceptor squadrons of 72 Fleet Air Arm were put on notice. They would be spread among the three carriers attached to Pedestal. Eagle, already at Gibraltar, currently victorious, was with the home fleet, and the Indomitable. She was now coming around the Cape from the Indian Ocean. As the bulk of the carrier-based fighters were at Ferry Fulmars, a two-seat fighter reconnaissance aircraft with a top speed of 300 miles an hour, well, they were not quite equal to the land-based fighters of the enemy that they would be pitted against. Hence, most of the Fulmars were rapidly switched out with Sea Hurricanes and Martlets, a United States Navy Wildcat fighter. Further, during the voyage, it was decided there would be a patrol of 18 aircraft overhead 
during the day, another 18 on instant readiness, and another 12 on immediate reserve. And to be sure, Gibraltar and Malta would have their planes up when the ships were within their range. In other words, there was to be a constant umbrella over the convoy, but the days of close coordination between these branches, well, that was still in the future. And below these aircraft, yes, there would be many destroyers and light cruisers, but their age and abilities were greatly different. Some of these vessels, christened before the Great War, they would only be given anti-sub duties. But returning to the air arm, the RAF on Malta was augmented by aircraft being flown in from the Middle East, anything to help make Pedestal a success. Still, Air Vice Marshal Sir Keith Park made it clear, all the aircraft's number one priority was to report all enemy surface movement. From that, various defensive gestures could be made, but knowing where the enemy was, that was paramount. And as the land battles in North Africa have been previously covered, it will make sense that when CNC Auchinleck was asked to launch a massive offensive to hopefully distract the enemy and cause them to commit forces to that fight, Auchinleck said no. Not because he was unwilling, but because it was not possible. At that moment, 8th Army was waiting for the next attack from Rommel, and waiting, quite frankly, to see if they did any better this time. No, the army would have to sit this one out. As for the merchantmen themselves, the Admiralty only wanted the fastest possible ships. But beggars can't be choosers, and as the Battle of the Atlantic had already removed their very best, the best of what was left was quickly snatched up and sent to Scapa Flow. And wisely, a bit of everything would be put into each ship as all concerned had to acknowledge that some of these vessels would not make it to Malta. But that left oil that could only go in tankers. So the Admiralty started looking around again. The Admiralty stated that any tanker attached to pedestal had to have a minimum speed of 16 knots, and the British merchant fleet simply did not have one of those. The Americans did, so previously a clever man, Sir Ralph Metcalf of the Ministry of War Transport, had asked the Americans for two tankers, the Kentucky and the Ohio. Reluctantly, the Yanks said yes. But Kentucky had been lost during Operation Harpoon, one of the many to resupply Malta, so now it was up to the Ohio. On July 10th, the American crew came off, the British crew walked on and then she was sent to the King George V dock so her armaments could be supplemented. Captain Dudley Mason, age 39, the youngest master in the British fleet, was put in charge of the Ohio. But it would be Lieutenant D. Barton, with his naval and army gunners, all just put aboard, that would be in charge of the ship's AA guns. The Ohio already had a 5-inch gun aft and a 3-inch HA gun in her bows, but now was being added a 40mm Borphorus and six Ehrlichons. Hopefully, the enemy would be in for a nasty surprise. The crew was relieved and yet still nervous about these improvements. Surely all this meant they were about to be in the middle of some interesting times. 
And finally, the Ohio was moved to Dunglass, where she took on 11,000 tons of much-needed oil from Malta. Then she was placed with the other waiting ships. By July 31st, 13 freighters and the Ohio were gathered. But this would not be a British undertaking unless there was a bit of deception. And that got started first thing. The convoy was given a WS label, Winston Special, and its number was 52S, as if these ships were heading for a trip around Africa and thence to the Suez. And it was during the afternoon of July 31st that the merchant captains were told their destination, Malta. These men then went back to their ships and informed their crews. The tension started rising as stories were known that that area was nothing more than an Axis turkey shoot. But adding a bad omen onto bad feelings, at 6.25 that morning, the destroyer Lamerton, in thick fog, rammed into the SS Almanera, which was to have been on escort duty. The Lamerton was sent away for repairs and would be replaced by the Keppel, who was now on her way to Gibraltar to await the convoy. As the sun went down that day, the ships headed out. It was August 1st, Sunday, and as the darkness came, the convoy reached the open sea. In each merchant captain's hand was a note, but attached to that note was a warning. Do not open this until 8 a.m. August 10th. This would put them just past Gibraltar. The letter from the Admiralty thanked the crews for what they were about to go through. In part, it read, Her, meaning Malta's, courage is worthy of yours. We wish you all Godspeed and good luck. On August 3rd, the flagship of Force X, the light cruiser Nigeria, joined the ever-growing convoy as more escorts left the Clyde, Scotland, Londonderry, Northern Ireland, Scapa Flow, and Gibraltar. Before the morning was over, eight destroyers joined the convoy, beefing up its muscle should the enemy try anything this early on. Now that Admiral Burrow, commander of Four Sex, had arrived, the first thing he did was organize the merchantmen into two columns. Then he had them carry out various exercises, because he needed them, by the time they reached the Mediterranean, to be able to efficiently carry out his orders to maximize their protection. Of course, as the ships and their captains were going at 15 knots, and they were rather independent characters, the captains, the ships, and the crews, and they were used to being on the sea alone, the first few exercises went rather poorly. But they would get there in time, because the alternative did not bear thinking about. Hey everyone, Ray here. If you want to own your own piece of World War II history, you should check out Investment Caster. This artist creates amazing models of tanks, planes, and landing craft out of pure silver. Each one is hand-casted and exquisitely finished to do justice to the genius engineering of World War II. And it's 99.9% pure silver, making it an artifact and a treasure. Check out the current selection at investmentcaster.com and use promo code HISTORY for $10 off your first purchase. As the convoy made for the Atlantic, swinging around occupied France, it was joined by the carrier Argus and her two destroyer escorts. 
Later, the carrier Victorious would join them, and she had around her the destroyers Foresight, Fury, Intrepid, and Icarus. These destroyers were notable, as near the end of the journey, they had the duty, as they had high-speed minesweepers on board, of getting the merchantmen through the ever-growing minefield between Sicily and Tripoli. The Admiralty had this section on their maps labeled, which had caused the loss of numerous ships, Minefield QBB-255, which left the carrier furious. She was added on to take advantage of the massive escort numbers, and she would deliver Spitfires to Malta, or rather, they would take off and fly to the island once Furious was just past Gibraltar. Seyfried was not happy with this extra target on his back, but orders were orders. Though the 42 Spitfires on board had to have their propellers changed out to actually be able to take off from the old girl, a former battlecruiser come carrier, still, things were coming together, and Furious set out after the merchantmen. For the next few days, the Spitfires practiced taking off Furious, and soon, the brass was satisfied. Not that everything went according to plan. Admiral Seifert himself joined the convoy at 9.35 a.m. on August 3rd. Fitting his rank, a Sunderland escort was flying over his vessel. But when the plane came out of a low cloud, she was mistaken for an enemy and shot down. Points for marksmanship, but a failing grade overall in not recognizing one of their own. The gunners and almost everyone else on board the ships were drilled again and again on plane identification. As the convoy was still in open waters on August 4th, Seyfried and Burroughs had the fleet practice switching from four columns to two columns, as they would need to do this just before traversing between Sicily and Tunisia. That area was called the Skerke Narrows, and while large, was shallow, relatively speaking, so the vessels would have to tighten up to get through. This they practiced over and over until Burrow was satisfied. But, it must be said, when the actual moment came, the combat conditions that they would be under, well, those were something that could not be fully simulated. And, of course, making this journey possible was Force R, the main oiling force, comprised of the tankers Brown Ranger, Dingledale, and the Tug Jaunty. Then the tanker Savonia was added, and it was decided that Jaunty would accompany the convoy all the way to Malta. Few cheers were raised by the crew when this news was passed on. It had been decided that as many ships as possible would be refueled just after passing Gibraltar. As the fighting was expected to be heavy then, and the ships that would have to go to Malta, well, they could not get fuel there. That was the whole point of the whole trip. The days spent before Gibraltar was reached were full of practice. The gun crews practiced the blind and umbrella barrages, while the ships changed formation, coming ever closer to being able to act as one. Because Operation Pedestal saw the largest naval and air force ever assembled in British history, and with Furious along for the ride, it was decided to squeeze in one more thing, that being Operation Berserk. With four carriers in one place, it was decided to have their air arms practice working together. After all, they would be doing this soon enough, 
in facing the enemy fighters and bombers of the Germans and the Italians. The carrier Indomitable had just given 806 and 800 squadrons on board new planes. The Fulmars were replaced with Martlets, that being the name given by the British to the Grumman Wildcats, and some of the other older Wildcats were exchanged for Sea Hurricanes. With 10 of these pilots being new, brand new, never in combat before, this workup would hopefully do them some good. So the Victorious launched its old Fulmars and they patrolled at a lower altitude while the other two carriers launched their martlets and sea hurricanes to patrol a higher area. All the while, all three carriers had to take care of their own protective screens. To be sure, mistakes were made, planes were lost, but at least when the enemy air forces came at them, it would not be the first time Britain's carriers tried to respond in an organized fashion. This exercise went on for another two days. Again, the difference between a civilian and a soldier, or in this case a pilot, is training. But soon the game was afoot. As the convoy approached Gibraltar, or the Rock, at 11 a.m. on August 7th, a Catalina spotted a German sub. The U-boat got away, but the RAF Coastal Command at the Rock was informed, and they started a round-the-clock anti-submarine patrol. This went on until the 11th. The next day, a Wellington medium bomber from 233 Squadron relocated that U-boat. It was one of three in the area, and the Wellington started to attack. The U-boat was not sunk, but her engines were damaged enough that she had to return to base. First blood went to the defenders. With the training of Operation Berserk over, the carriers joined back up with the main force. As vessels were told to dash to the rock for refueling, everyone on whatever ship they were on guessed that the enemy had to know of their presence and intent by now. As Gibraltar was replete with spies, all those ships going in for refueling clinched it. Now it was just a matter of waiting. When would the enemy arrive and how would they attack? Now, even closer to the rock, at 11 p.m. on August 9th, a thick fog rolled in, which pleased Seifert. But by sunrise the next day, the 10th, the skies were clear and the convoy sped up to 13 and a half knots. There were almost a few deadly mistakes made that same day. Friendly Hudson bombers were patrolling near the convoy, but had not activated their IFF, or Identification Friend or Foe Beacons. As such, victorious not once, but twice sent fighters aloft to take out the supposed enemy. Fortunately, the truth became known before the first shot was fired. Suffice it to say, nerves were on edge. And then all that supposed secrecy, radio silence, and planning went out the window, thanks to a French air crew. Also on the 10th, a French civilian aircraft flying from France to Algeria, spotted a part of the convoy and got on the radio to tell the world that she had spotted two battleships, two carriers, two cruisers, and at least 14 destroyers. After the war, an Italian official historian would remark, this interesting information proved of the greatest usefulness later. 
And in truth, the Axis suspected something was coming, and that it had to be large in order to save Malta. So plans were made for their own large response to whatever the British did. All they needed was a starting point of when the enemy ships were in the Mediterranean. And thanks to a French pilot, that information had just been provided. It only stands to reason that as the British were pulling a significant number of escorts together for a pedestal, that the Axis, again having an inkling of what was coming, would do the same. And it can be easily argued that, again, during the late summer of 1942, the Axis were at the height of their power. However, it would be the very partnership of the Axis that lessened the blow that the Italians could have delivered. From almost the day that Mussolini declared war on France, and thereby the Allies, Rome had constantly begged Berlin for oil for her battleships. The Germans, needing the oil for its many uses, but certainly for its ships off Norway's coast, said no more than they said yes. So the Italian battleships would not be a part of the Axis response to pedestal. Still, it was decided that if Admiral de Zara's light cruiser division was paired with a heavy cruiser division, then they would more than be enough for the close escorts that were expected to stay alongside the merchantmen on the last part of the trip to Malta. Besides, didn't the British always turn away their heavier ships before reaching the Narrows? It would be the same here, and what few Allied cruisers and destroyers made it through after the many air and sub-attacks, not to mention the minefield, they would then be wiped out. That was Rome's conclusion. On came the convoy, and the first batch of waiting enemy subs, there were seven in all, were stationed just north of Algiers. Their principal task was to, again, locate the convoy. Then other subs, currently in port around Sardinia and Sicily, would come further west and position themselves just west of the Skirky Narrows. If anything survived these first two groups of subs and then the Narrows with its impressive minefield and torpedo boats, a last remaining sub, Asteria, would be placed just west of Malta. As much as the British carriers and their air arms were trying to work out a more cohesive and therefore powerful response to the approaching battle, the Germans and the Italians did not. Oh, there would be some close coordination among air units, but that was just to make sure that as many of them as possible survived. Overall, the two sides made their own plans, confident as the convoy was forced to take a known path. But rest assured, the Germans would be bringing their professionalism and ability to the fight, certainly in terms of their air power, though the Italians did commit 320 aircraft, all kinds, to this fight, and the Italians were the leading country in the world in terms of torpedo attacks. Taken as a whole, Rome expected nothing to reach Malta. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Early on August 11th, both German and Italian planes were flying over the western half of the Mediterranean. But they would not be the one to spot the enemy force first, nor to make a strike. The Italian sub, You Are Sick, under Captain Targhia, was submerged, quiet even, but with her hydrophones on. At 3.40 p.m. August 11th, she picked up a faint sound and waited. It got louder. It was turbines. At 4 p.m., Targhia brought his boat to the surface, pointed her west, and slowly headed out. Not an hour later, a lookout spotted the dark outline of one carrier and one battleship. Taking his time to get into position, not until 4.42 a.m., now August 12th, Targhia let loose three torpedoes. The intended target was the carrier Furious, and there were two explosions. But the rest of this encounter will disappoint you. Targhia would later radio to Rome that he had sunk a carrier, whereas the British did not even have a note of this attack in their official history. Most likely, the torpedoes were launched, nothing was hit, the Furious went about her way, and the torpedoes, for whatever reason, exploded. But a nearby destroyer did note that two explosions were heard. That's it. But Targhia would also report, later, surviving a massive depth charge attack. Four of them, actually. It's assumed by many historians that Targhia's enthusiasm got carried away which would not be the last inflated tale that was attached to the Battle of the Pedestal Convoy. But that wasn't the only action that day, August 11th. While the last of the destroyers were being refueled, which took practically all day, that morning at 8 a.m., the corvette Coltsfoot reported seeing two torpedoes break the surface. No ships were damaged. Turns out the Italian sub Uarsic was now just behind the convoy and reporting in its speed and location. This caused Rome to put out an all-units-and-stations alarm, which Gibraltar picked up and told the convoy. Now everyone knew everything, and everyone knew that everyone knew everything. Still, as battles always remind us, the devil is in the details. Still that same morning, at 8.15 a.m., the radar contacts started. Fighters were scrambled, but the enemy reconnaissance planes were adept at hiding or getting away. One German bomber was claimed to have been shot down, but no one saw it to confirm it. Either way, German records show that JU-88s were in the area at this time and reporting what they saw below them. Fighters would take off all day, but there were few interactions, which did not mean that planes and pilots were not lost. Taking off and landing on a carrier is always dicey, and so there were accidents. But the majority of pilots that went down in the Mediterranean were later rescued by destroyer crews. At 11.28 a.m., the battleship Nelson and the cruiser Charybdis reported seeing a disturbance on the surface, most likely a torpedo. At 12.30, the Furious moved away from the convoy to launch her Spitfires. They were multi-bound. Some 38 Spitfires were now on their way to padding the island's punching power. Soon after, the carrier Eagle 
closely watched over by Charybdis, was on the starboard quarter of the convoy, doing 13 knots and on the starboard leg of a zigzag. Four of her sea hurricanes were overhead, working with the patrol of the Victorious. Suddenly, at 1.15 p.m., four explosions erupted on the Eagle's port side. Immediately, she listed to port. No one had seen anything in the water. This was the attack, out of the blue, that had nerves on edge. Though the convoy had been told that U-boats were on their way to the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, U-boat 73 was already there, waiting. Her chance had come, and her captain, Rosenbaum, slowly circled counterclockwise to attack from the north. Amazingly, due to his patience, he was able to get past several lines of surface defenses. The first torpedo hit the Eagle's port quarter. Within 10 seconds, the other three had struck as well. The port engine room went quiet. Her list went from 5 to 30 degrees in less than four minutes. Two minutes after that, she was being swallowed by the waters of the Mediterranean. One pilot on the Indomitable, who was about to take off, he had a front row seat to this catastrophe. He later wrote, There had hardly been time to assimilate the fact that she had been hit before she had capsized and sunk. When I took off, my mind was still numbed by what I had just seen. When Rosenbaum launched his four torpedoes, he was only 500 yards away from the Eagle, with an enemy destroyer 400 yards to either side of him, and his sub was having numerous mechanical issues, but this was an opportunity that no sub-commander could pass up, and Rosenbaum did not. Best guess, by most historians, is that there was a layer of cold water of differing density just above his U-boat, hence it was hidden from the Aztecs. Either way, U-boat 73 dove and got away. Right away, several destroyers and the tug Jaunty arrived on the scene, searching for survivors. In the end, of the 1,160 men now in the water, 67 officers and 862 ratings were rescued. As for the four aircraft of Eagles, one landed on the Indomitable and the others on Victorious. They were the only carriers left, as Eagle was now sunk and the Furious had turned away, having delivered her Spitfires. Later that day, Rosenbaum radioed the C&C German submarines in the Mediterranean and told him of his success. Even later, around 10 p.m. that night, German radio announced Rosenbaum's accomplishment and that he had been awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. Germany now had a new hero, and the British Royal Navy was down another carrier. Forget Malta surviving for the moment. Would the Royal Navy survive pedestal? That was becoming the question.